Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. I've treated hundreds of gay patients. I was seeing a lot of patients who had been in previous treatments in which they tried to change. And so many of them reported that they felt worse than when they started because, first of all, the therapist said it was their motivation that would lead to change. And when they didn't change, they blamed themselves. And so people would become more depressed, more anxious. Some people reported that they felt like hurting themselves or committing suicide because the treatment didn't work. And most of these treatments don't work, by the way. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported, independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sarah. On this edition of Outcasting, we delve into the history of conversion therapy and views of homosexuality in the psychiatric and medical professions. Homosexuality used to be defined as a mental disorder, and many psychiatrists used to practice conversion therapy. The practice of trying to change someone's sexuality from gay or bisexual to straight. This practice is now widely discredited within the medical and mental health professions. However, it still exists throughout the country, now usually associated with religious institutions rather than medical institutions. What is the history of the practices and ideas? How have they changed over time? And where are we now? To begin to answer some of these questions, Outcaster Andrew speaks with Dr. Jack Drescher, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. This is part one of a series. Dr. Jack Drescher, thanks so much for joining us on Outcasting. Thanks for having me. Uh, So just to start off, what is your specific background and experience with LGBTQ patients and issues? Uh, I've been working with LGBT patients for over 30 years. Uh, I've written a textbook on how to treat gay patients, and I've edited over 20 books uh, related to the mental health and health of LGBT patients. And I'm the former editor, actually the editor emeritus of the Journal of Gay and Lesbian Mental Health. And what about your specific background on conversion therapy? I've been writing about conversion therapies for over 20 years. And I have served on committees at the American Psychiatric Association and the American Psychological Association having to do with conversion therapy. How would you define conversion therapy? Well, conversion therapy is a shorthand for something we sometimes call sexual orientation conversion efforts, or SOCE, which is an effort to try and change a homosexual attraction into heterosexual attractions. What methods have you heard of being used in conversion therapy? Over time, there have been many methods tried. People have tried electric shocks to try and change sexual orientation. People have tried brain surgery. People have tried different kinds of medications and chemicals. Most of the treatments, uh, and I use the word treatments in quotation marks, are usually talking treatments. So historically, how have psychiatry and the medical profession approached homosexuality? Historically, homosexuality was viewed as a mental disorder starting in the 19th century. Uh, That continued into the 20th century until 1973 when the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its diagnostic manual called the DSM. 
And going back to the start of your career, how did most mental health professionals view gay people? Well, my career started in the 80s, and so I think the, my profession was still in transition, although the, the American Psychiatric Association had removed homosexuality in 1973 from the DSM. There were still lots of psychiatrists who disagreed with that decision, and so there was a lot of discrimination within the field of psychiatry uh, against gay psychiatrists. Were there ever mental health professionals who tried to cure homosexuality, either during your career or before? Yes, there were people before my career, during my career, who were still offering claims that they could change homosexuality. So when did this practice start? Well, I'm not sure that there's a, an official starting date. I know that Sigmund Freud wrote a paper that came out in 1920 in which he told about the, uh, a patient who was brought to him by her parents because she was having a relationship with another woman, and the parents brought her there to try and change their daughter. He wrote, however, that uh, the chances of trying to change a homosexual into a heterosexual were no better than the chances of changing a heterosexual into a homosexual. So he was very pessimistic. But that didn't stop people who came after Freud from trying to do that. So in the 20th century, a lot of people were trying to do that. So in the past, about how common was it for mental health professionals to try to cure homosexuality? I'm not sure there's statistics about how common it was, but I think it was not an unusual practice. So what did this practice look like, and how did they go about trying to change someone's sexuality? Well, there were so many different uh, things that people did. It's hard to talk about all the things. But basically, they would start out by first putting the burden of change on the patient. The patient was told that if they wanted to change, that they had to be motivated to change. And even if the treatment didn't work, then it turned out to be the patient's fault, not because the method didn't work. They would discourage patients from engaging in homosexual activities. They would encourage patients to engage in heterosexual activities. They would interpret to the patient or tell the patient that the reason that they were homosexual was because they had a bad relationship with their parents or some other reason, even though even today we still do not know today what causes either homosexuality or heterosexuality, but they would teach their theories to the patient. So why did they do this, and what led them to believe that it would work? <laughs> there are many uh, people who practice in the mental health professions who see themselves as agents of conformity in society. So since society condemned homosexuality, the mental health professions also condemned homosexuality, but rather than thinking of it as a crime or a sin, they called it an illness. They just simply switched the sin model to an illness model. So what did lead them to think that this would work? Therapeutic exuberance would be a term. I mean, uh, there was a time, particularly in the early days of psychoanalysis, when people believed that they could treat everything with psychoanalysis. So I take that to mean that there was really no scientific evidence behind it? Uh, there was only case reports. There was no other kind of evidence. And people would write up a case and say they cured somebody. Of course, they didn't do follow-up studies, you know, five years later to see where the person was. How credible are case reports? Like, are, are they, how useful are they in terms of scientific evidence? Well, that depends on who you ask. There are some people who believe the case reports are very important. Case reports have limited use because it's one case. I've treated hundreds of gay patients. I had one patient who, at the end of his treatment, 
was more interested in women and dating women. So I have a case report of a quote unquote cure, but that doesn't mean that the work that I do involves curing homosexuality. So there's so many different things that go into what goes on in a therapy between one therapist and one patient. It's hard to know what leads to change or what doesn't lead to change. So I don't think case reports are the way to persuade the general public that you can change homosexuality. And so on the patient side, what effect did this practice actually have on patients? So what I've seen in my practice, when I was seeing patients in the 80s and 90s, I was seeing a lot of patients who had been in previous treatments in which they tried to change. And so many of them reported that they felt, after the treatment didn't work, of course, that they felt worse than when they started because, first of all, the therapist said it was their motivation that would lead to change. And when they didn't change, they blamed themselves. And so people would become more depressed. People would become more anxious. Some people reported that they felt like hurting themselves or committing suicide because the treatment didn't work. And most of these treatments don't work, by the way. And then some patients were encouraged by their therapist to get married during the treatment, get into a heterosexual marriage. And some of them even had children. And so when they didn't change, it wasn't clear how that marriage would continue. Some of those marriages fell apart. So a lot of damage was done to people's lives by, let me call them well-meaning therapists, because they probably were well-meaning at the time. So when and why did this practice stop within the medical profession? That's a good question. In 1973, when the American Psychiatric Association said that homosexuality was no longer a mental disorder... What changed in the training of psychiatrists and other mental health professionals is that if it wasn't a mental disorder, then there was no reason to teach people how to quote unquote treat it. Because when you're learning to be a psychiatrist, there are lots of things you have to learn how to treat in the four years of training. And the last thing you need to learn is how to treat something which is not a mental disorder. So gradually, as after 1973, the field moved away from trying to change homosexuality. So you've mentioned the DSM a couple of times. So the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, is the standard clinical authority on diagnosis and classification of mental disorders. What and why was homosexuality first put in the DSM? The first DSM came out in 1952. It was published by the American Psychiatric Association. And it was a compendium, a list of conditions which psychiatrists at the time thought of as mental disorders. So they listed things in there that they were working on, things that they were quote-unquote treating. And so people were treating homosexuality as a mental disorder back then. And so it was included in the DSM-1 when it came out in 1952. It was taken for granted at the time that anything that psychiatrists said was a mental disorder was one. And there was no challenge, I think, to that decision back in 1952. You mentioned that the way that medical professionals viewed sexuality was what caused it to be put in the DSM. Did that also go the other way? Did the presence of homosexuality in the DSM affect the way that medical professionals treated gay patients or the way that they scientifically viewed homosexuality? Oh, absolutely. I mean, these were people who were considered mentally ill. You have to understand in the 1950s, for example, there was no will and grace. The portrayals of gay people in the media were often mentally ill people, tragically doomed people, you know, movies and uh, not so much on television, but in films, gay people were viewed as disturbed pitiful, sinful. So medical views on homosexuality in many ways simply reflected larger society's views on homosexuality. 
This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Andrew is talking with Dr. Jack Drescher about conversion therapy and the views of homosexuality in the medical and mental health professions. Dr. Drescher is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. When and why was homosexuality taken out of the DSM? Now, that's a very interesting story. Today, the DSM is a rather uh, well-known document. Stories about the DSM-5, which came out in 2013, are all over the news, all over the radio, TV. But back then, it was an obscure document known only to mental health professionals. And so... What led to the removal of homosexuality from the DSM was that the primary psychiatric thinking at the time was influenced by psychoanalytic thinking of that time. And the psychoanalytic thinking at that time was that homosexuality was a mental disorder, that it was a maladjustment, and that it should be treated and it should not be tolerated in any way. But there was another group of people who were not psychoanalysts, but sex researchers like Alfred Kinsey, who were doing research that was showing that, well, maybe homosexuality is more common in the general population than people think. So Kinsey's studies show that sometimes up to 10 to 35% of the thousands of people they studied and interviewed were showing some history of homosexuality in their adult life. So this took issue with the idea that homosexuality was a rare mental condition and what came out of Kinsey's work was the idea that homosexuality could be a normal variation of sexuality, not a majority view, so just as the way you know some people are normally left-handed and most people are right-handed. Some people could be homosexually oriented even though the majority were heterosexually oriented. So that was one sort of changing way of thinking within sex researchers about homosexuality. This was also followed in the 1950s by the work of a psychologist named Evelyn Hooker, who did testing. She did what we call projective testing, you know, like a Rorschach, where you give people, show them a picture, and what do you think the picture represents? And the idea is that the test is supposed to show who has uh, mental problems and who does not. So what Hooker did is she interviewed 60 patients, 60 subjects, they weren't patients, 60 gay men and 60 heterosexual men. She did three different kinds of tests. And then she asked the leading experts of those three tests to interpret the results. And they could find no difference in psychopathology between the gay subjects and the heterosexual subjects. And this was also at odds with the prevailing theory of the time, which was that homosexuality was not just a sexual disturbance, but a global mental disturbance that homosexuals were not just abnormal in their sexuality, but they were also abnormal in other areas of psychological function. So this buttressed and supported the idea of a normal view of homosexuality, that it's a normal view of sexuality. Now, what happens in many academic fields is that psychiatrists do not often read or like the literature that comes from other fields. Hooker was a psychologist. Kinsey was a a sex researcher and an insect taxonomist. So uh, Kinsey was attacked for his work by the psychoanalysts and uh, his first work came out in 1949. Hooker was mostly ignored. 
But it wasn't ignored by the gay community. And what happened in 1969 here in New York City, we had Stonewall riots. The Stonewall riots were a response to police raiding a gay bar in Greenwich Village called the Stonewall. At the time, it was illegal for people in these establishments to dance together. Same-sex dancing was illegal. And the police would periodically raid bars, let the reporters know that they were coming to raid the bar so that the reporters could get the names of the people they arrested and destroy their lives. And this was a common practice. The bars were run by the mafia. And sometimes, uh, you know, they would not pay their protection money to the police. The police department was rather corrupt back in those days. Or they would raid a bar just as an example to other bars. In 1969, the Stonewall Bar was raided, and the patrons of the bar fought back, which led to three days of rioting in New York's Greenwich Village. People were throwing bottles at police. It was a big to-do. And although there had been gay rights organizations in the United States since the 1950s, this Stonewall riot galvanized the existing groups. It kind of radicalized them. They were also being radicalized by the way people were demonstrating in general in the 60s. You had civil rights uh, demonstrations. You had feminist demonstrations, anti-war demonstrations. There was a lot of furor on the streets against authority at the time. And so the gay rights movements radicalized. They had been very polite before 1969. And they decided that the way to change people's minds about homosexuality was to go after the psychiatrists who were considered the enemy of gay people. And the DSM in particular, because it classified them as mentally ill, the DSM was seen as the instrument to change people's minds. And so in 1970, a year later, the American Psychiatric Association was meeting at its annual meeting that year in San Francisco. And gay rights activists invaded the convention hall. They interfered and interrupted uh, meetings going on on the treatment of homosexuality. They would grab the microphones away from the psychiatrist who was speaking. One activist said, stop it, you're making me sick, is how he put it, Ron Gold. And this got the APA's attention. So what happened was APA then invited the activists back to do a couple of panels on uh, gay is good, to have non-patient homosexuals speaking to psychiatrists about their lives and the impact of the psychiatric diagnosis on their lives. And when they did this, you know, some psychiatrists who had only met homosexuals in their practices were seeing people who were not patients, who were talking about themselves and why they resented the way they were being treated by the field of psychiatry. And so they did a panel in 71, and they did another panel in 1972. They invited a gay psychiatrist to be on the panel. But because in 1972, homosexuality was illegal in most states, a psychiatrist who came out openly to his peers could lose his job, could lose his referrals. And so they found a doctor who was willing to appear in disguise. He was wearing like a rubber Halloween mask and a fright wig and an oversized tuxedo using a voice disguising microphone. He, they called him Dr. Anonymous. And Dr. Anonymous spoke to his peers and said why he had to hide and the impact of being considered mentally ill. And this was a very powerful experience. Dr. F uh, Anonymous turned out to be Dr. John Fryer, who passed away, I think, in 2003. And this was a very powerful lesson for psychiatrists at their meetings. In addition, they set up a committee which was chaired by Robert Spitzer, 
in which they interviewed people about the pros and cons of a diagnosis. People argued for the diagnosis and against the diagnosis. And they, they decided at the end of that that the science surrounding uh, sex research, like Kinsey and Hooker's study, was sounder science than the psychoanalytic case histories, which were pathologizing homosexuality. And they recommended to the American Psychiatric Association that homosexuality be removed from the diagnostic manual. And the Board of Trustees of the APA voted in December of 1973 to remove the diagnosis from what was then called the DSM-2. Today, we're in the DSM-5. So that was the start of that decision. Now, the psychoanalysts who had lost in committees the arguments to preserve the diagnosis did not take that decision well. And so they initiated a petition with 200 signatures to have the membership vote to overturn the Board of Trustees' decision using a bylaw that was originally meant to overturn administrative decisions, not scientific decisions. You couldn't have a referendum like that today in the APA. They've changed that bylaw, but then they could. And they forced a referendum on the APA. APA had 20,000 members at the time and 10,000 voted, and 58% of the members voted to support the decision of the Board of Trustees. Now, that's an interesting phenomenon because in reality, back in 1974, when this referendum took place, the majority of psychiatrists did believe that homosexuality was a mental disorder because they'd all been trained in that model of, uh, of illness. And so they weren't really voting on their beliefs. They were voting to support the Board of Trustees' scientific process of removal. And that was what the vote was really about. Now, the losing side did some very interesting things after that. They would then go around saying that, well, you know, you can't decide these things by a vote. But they don't tell you that their side was the one that asked for the vote in the first place. And that begs the question of whether you can decide scientific issues by a vote, because back in 2006, the International Astronomical Union voted to remove Pluto from the group of planets. Pluto used to be a planet in my childhood. It's no longer considered a planet. And that was done by a, a vote of scientists deciding that they had changed their mind about Pluto. So that's how homosexuality got removed. So when it was removed, did that change how the medical or mental health professionals treated gay patients? Gradually, not right away. I think it took a long time before the so change takes a long time. How old are you, Andrew? I am 17. You're 17. So homosexuality was removed in 1973. We did not have in the United States the first policy discussion about the roles of gay people until 1993 when President Clinton tried to remove the ban on gays in the military. So it took 20 years before you had a national policy decision following the APA decision. So gay people were not treated very well. The Immigration and Naturalization Service, for example, until 1989 still classified homosexuality as a mental disorder that would prevent a person from emigrating to the United States. And that was 16 years after the APA decision. So these things take time. And you mentioned that there was a lot of a lot of division even among the medical professionals when this happened. Did that take a lot of time for that to sort of balance out? 
I didn't start training to be a psychiatrist until 1980. When I came to New York to do my psychiatric training, there were a lot of people who were still very anti-gay. There were lots of programs, psychiatric training programs in New York City that would not accept an openly gay uh, candidate to be a resident. So that was still going around. The psychoanalysts actually did not change their official policies in the American Psychoanalytic Association until 1991. So yes, there was still a lot of discrimination. And you mentioned Robert Spitzer in terms of his involvement in removing homosexuality from the DSM. Um, he also presented a study in 2001 supposedly showing that it was possible to cure homosexuality. Uh, he issued right. an apology, though, in 2012. So how was this study initially received by the scientific community? That's a very complicated story. The, the story of Dr. Spitzer is very complicated. But Dr. Spitzer was a person who liked to go against the grain. And so he liked to go against the grain when he led the subcommittee that advised APA to remove homosexuality from the DSM. And then uh, around 2001, I guess, what is that, almost 30 years later, he was again going against the grain because the American Psychiatric Association had issued a statement saying that ethical practitioners should not do conversion therapies. And Dr. Spitzer didn't like anybody telling him what to do. So he decided on his own to do a study. He had met a bunch of ex-gays protesting outside one of the APA meetings. And he went to them and their organizations and interviewed 200 people by phone to see whether or not homosexuality could change. And he concluded that it could. He gave people a 45-minute structured interview and uh, based on what they told him, that they remembered how they used to function and how they were functioning now, he believed them and that they could change. And so when he repudiated his own study 11 years later, he basically said he had no way of knowing whether they were telling the truth or not. So essentially, was that the main problem with the study's methodology or were there other, other problems as well? Well, some of the problems with the study, one is, the te first of all, it was one telephone interview, 45 minutes, and uh, there was no follow-up interview because sometimes if you do a follow-up interview, you'll get a different story than the first time. So there was no follow-up studies. Second of all, Dr. Spitzer actually wasn't really an expert on human sexuality. He, you know, That was not really his area of expertise. He happened to be in charge of the subcommittee back in the 70s that was looking into it, but that was a not because his his the body of his research had anything to do with human sexuality. Another problem was is that uh, these were what you call retrospective memories. You're saying, you know, like not, you know, you interview a prospective study is before somebody changes, you interview them, then you see after they've been through the process what goes on. This was simply asking people, what do you remember? And in fact, the study was published in a very unusual way. I was lucky enough to be a friend of Dr. Spitzer, you know, toward the end of his life. We became good friends after his study came out as we discussed it over and over again. But uh, he had submitted the study to the American Journal of Psychiatry, which is probably the most prestigious journal. And he said he had never gotten back so many comments about why the study should not be published. So he wound up publishing it in a journal, The Archives of Sexual Behavior, Disclosure. I'm on the editorial board of the Archives now, which is the official journal of a group called the International Association for Sex Research. But what the editor of Archives did is, rather than subjecting the study to actual peer review to decide whether or not it should be published, he published the study. 
And then he invited peer reviewers. He published the peer reviews as well. And the majority of peer reviews said the study should not be published. So had they done a real peer review, an official, you know, a typical peer review, they would never publish the study. But the study garnered a lot of publicity for the journal, which some journals like. This has been a great conversation. We'll continue this next time. Dr. Jack Drescher, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. We're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there until the next edition of Outcasting. Outcaster Andrew has been talking with Dr. Jack Drescher, a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. This has been part one of a series on conversion therapy. Tune in again next time for part two. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Andrew, Dante, Lauren, Lucas, Max, Nico, Quinn, and Drew. Our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.